I'm Tom Morello, host of Maximum Firepower, a weekly podcast focusing on the music, the moments, and the movements that have shaped my worldview and left an indelible mark on me as an artist and activist. Correct with Maximum Firepower. You and me. This is Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. I'm Tom Morello, and this is Maximum Firepower. My esteemed guests today are Nina Gordon of Veruca Salt, longtime friend and musical compadre, and Ann Previn, the Oscar-nominated Ann Previn, fellow Harvard classmate of mine, though she's 30 years younger than I am, which is really weird, and a great friend. Now, the overall arching topic for today's show is going to be open mic nights. We'll talk a little bit about our personal histories together, but there was a period in the early 2000s when a group of talented friends would gather sometimes multiple nights a week at various open mic nights in Los Angeles to ply our wares and to sharpen our songwriting abilities. And Anne and Nina were very much a part of that. And it was, for me, it was a huge sort of, sort of formative part of my, my artistic life. And it bore some interesting fruit. So first of all, Anne and Nina, hello and welcome. Hi. Thank you very much. So so Nina is a fellow Chicagoan, and your band, Veruca Salt, was one of my favorite bands of the particular era. I was in Atlanta attempting to record with Rage Against the Machine the Evil Empire record during the global ascension of Veruca Salt, and I was a huge fan of both your songs and your vibe. And the first question I ask you is, like, how did Chicago influence you as a songwriter and rocker? Oh, I think just being in a Midwestern city where rock is one of the most important parts of your life. It's like food, friends and rock and roll. You know? mm-hmm. And I feel like although as kids, I don't know if food was as important. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I feel like it also just being like cold and kind of dark. But we all had, you know, cheap trick in our blood. I think, you know, mm-hmm. there was just that. Although I was more of an XRT than an LUP, uh, Loop was like the big rock radio. And I was a little nerdier and a little more into yeah. Elvis Costello than like Ario Speedwagon. But yeah, but you, I feel you, like you've, re- you've reconciled that in later years, right? The Ario Speedwagon yeah, oh, and, and sure. Elvis Costello. Sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was thinking about it today. Like I grew up kind of rejecting the stoner rock. So like Led Zeppelin didn't really like permeate my world until college. Because there was just something it was like already claimed by the burnouts, you know, and I just didn't think of myself that way. And so it wasn't until like freshman year in college that my brother played, you know, Houses of the Holy for me. And, you know, it just like rocked my world and changed everything. I mean, for me, the Chicago area, how it washed up. I lived in suburbia. Did you live in in the city or I did, yeah. You were actually in the city, yeah. So I lived in the suburbs. I was about an hour north of the city in Libertyville. And there, again, it was like parking lot rock was, that was what music was. There was some sort of weird, we were trained to hate classical music and hate jazz music and hate whatever else. And it had to be big riff rock on the loop or nothing. But then also, and this relates to our open mic night stuff, I guess the way I describe it, like the suburban ennui, like the feeling that just something, the lawns are well manicured and everybody's got a smile on their face and the dads go to it, but something is darkly not Mm -hmm. right. You Mm -hmm. can't put your finger on it, but it's not right. And that, that (laughs) is very much seeped into my DNA and came out when we began doing sort of our songwriting exercises on open mic nights. Now, Ann Previn, Mm -hmm. Ann Previn, I like to brag about a lot because she's a a Harvard classmate of mine and an Oscar nominated Harvard classmate. But we didn't know each other when we were at Harvard. 
No. We first met at Cole Rehearsal Studios, mm-hmm. which is the studio where the Rage Against the Machine Evil Empire record was recorded. And Anne and I were friends. That we were rock friends in the hallways of Cole, right? Um, oh, yeah. and then And then one day, the proprietor who knew of my educational background said, did you know that Anne Previn went to Harvard as well? I was like, Anne Previn? Like from Edna Swap? That was Anne's great band that she was in at the time. And I said, I did not know that. So then we connected over that. Now, Anne, while I was in Harvard, I was a spandex-wearing Italian. Now, Anne belonged to a prestigious a cappella group yeah. and had a different experience. So yeah. how did your Harvard experience influence in any way your Oscar-nominated songwriting abilities? <laughs> oh, God. I don't think it <laughs> I'm gonna did. I'm going to say the it funny again and thing again. Is, I took one music class at Harvard and got my worst grade my whole career there in it. Like, I just, I, I was an a cappella nerd. But I think, you know, acapella teaches you a lot about arranging and about, you know, singing. I, I don't know. I don't think it was like a hugely formative time. I was pre-med. I wasn't thinking about a you career pre- in music at all. Yeah. I was oh, pre-med. I didn't remember that you were pre-med. So you were going to yeah. be a doctor, but you were like basically in the pitches. Yeah. yeah, I yeah. did. I did my thesis on like a part of the brain at a clinical research center at MIT. I used to commute to do my thesis. I had no thought about a music career at all. Really? And what was the name of the acapella group? Because they always the had these kind of the opportunes. The opportunes. Yeah, the and opportunes. What was, what was the name of the part of the brain that you did your the amygdala? You Thank you for on. asking. Oh, okay. <laughs> the the amygdalas might have been a better name for the yeah, group. I I, the one thing one, one thing about Ivy League groups is they they tended to have the worst names. My band, Harvard band, that won the Ivy League Battle of the Bands, and I still have like the medal somewhere, was called Board. Of education, I love that mm-hmm. name. That's a great name. So Come I on. don't love that name, but it's Come I was, on. and I, I had the alternately black and leopard print spandex that I won that in against. I, think it was I remember Yale the other band, the band that was popular at Harvard at that time was called Robespierre. Oh, Robespierre! They were our bitter. They were our most, our most bitter rivals. So later, later on, at one of our Harvard reunions, and I will delicately not mention which one. To pr- oh, preserve Anne's reputation in the oh, industry, but we the uh, uh, <laughs> got to perform with the Boston Symphony Orchestra. When he says "we," he's being very generous because the truth is, they asked you to perform, and you needed somebody to take some of the singing lines, and you were so generous in asking me. But I was thinking about it. I think between our Harvard reunion and me singing in front of all of our classmates and the class above us, whatever. I think the time before that that I performed on stage was open mic night, just to bring it all oh, the way back. <laughs> <laughs> well, that you blew the roof off of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> Orchestra. We did a cover of Ghost of Tom Joad with oh, the Boston God. Symphony like arrangement behind us, and you used all of your uh, training from the Amigulas, or I forget whatever the name the of the, yeah, the, the acapella group. <laughs> and it was pretty spectacular. Like Yo-Yo Ma is a Harvard dude as well. He's 10 years older than us. And so like, nuts. so, you know, we're playing the, with the Boston Symphony and, you know, and I'm shredding a guitar solo with my teeth cut to, you know, 10 minutes later when Yo-Yo Ma has his chance, he began playing his cello with his teeth. And that was pretty <laughs> a, a highlight of this. So, so, so around 2000, I was in a band called Audio Slave and it became clear to me, my original intention was that Audio Slave would be a more political band than my previous band, Rage Against the Machine. And when it became clear that that, you know, in order for a band to find its moorings and to be the best band it can be it has to be authentic and mm-hmm. audio the personal composition of audio slave was just not going to be more political than rage against the machine so i had to find outlets beyond that and i picked up the acoustic guitar and this was in my late 30s early 40s is when i first began writing songs as a singer songwriter mm-hmm. influenced by the a springsteen record ghost of tom joad and some mm-hmm. D- dylan records and whatnot 
and wanted to ply my trade at local open mic nights. Now, it was difficult for me to do that because I went to one open mic night and I signed up as Tom Morello and the seven people there only wanted to hear Bulls on Parade. And mm-hmm. that didn't work. So I came up with a moniker, the Night Watchman, to, to, as a cover, as a nom de plume to cover. And then I was kind of lonely doing it. So I asked some friends like the two of you. And what I remember is some of the craziest, weirdest and most wonderful musical experiences of my yep. entire life were during yeah. those open mic nights. So a group of friends would gather and. I'd scour the LA Weekly for multiple open mic nights a week where mm-hmm. we would go down and sign up anonymously, wait in line to play three songs while there's a whirring latte machine in the background. And then afterwards, we'd go out for drinks and sort of critique. It was like sort of a songwriter's workshop. It was so much fun. Sort of critique each other's work. And then each week, we were sort of challenged to come up with new material to then discuss. So, Nina, yeah. tell me what your memories are of this coven of songwriters in the early 2000s. Well, I think we all chose pseudonyms or nom de plume. But what I remember is the challenges that we would give each other. Like we'd come up with a theme for the song that you had to write. I don't know if it started out this way, but eventually we sort of morphed into this kind of challenge. Theme like week, someone right. came up with a theme. Yeah, you'd have a theme and you'd have to write that song and then perform it for everybody at this little you know coffee shop in the valley. And the only one I can remember is the word shit storm. I remember, <laughs> um, I don't know. I think I that, that was Dave Gibbs, Kid Lightning, who came up with that. And we all had to write songs. And I wish so badly that we all had recordings of our shit storm songs. Does anyone remember what theirs uh, was? Well, I can tell you why shit storm became a thing. We were We were finishing up like the first Audio Slave record. And one of the... <laughs> suggested song titles for the album that i was trying very hard to veto was shitstorm so shitstorm was shitstorm was in the front of my front of my mind and i was perhaps sort of working out some of my frustrations with that ongoing discussion funny you should mention who can you reveal who in the band was hoping for shitstorm i believe that i jokingly brought it up but i think it got a serious amount of momentum particularly from our record producer rick rubin at the time who was who was lobbying hard for the debut audio slave record to be called shitstorm at the time the band didn't even name maybe that was gonna be the name of the band but funny you should mention shitstorm because the person who won the the shitstorm sweepstakes was a fellow by the name of dave gibbs kid lightning was his moniker and the, the interesting thing about this night was you know i went on to make five americana albums that you know came directly from this you yeah. know Anne went on to you know run pulse music and and be nominated for an oscar nina continues her excellent career as, as a songwriter kid lightning made the broadway musical Rock of Ages. Yeah, he was a, right. one of the creators of Rock yeah. of Ages. So we would run into people at these open mic. And let me tell you, an open mic is an open ass mic. Oh, and that it just sure means is. any anybody, <laughs> anybody, means, yeah. you can anybody the, can you sign can get on the sweaty up. baby. You could get the sweaty baby. We're gonna talk night. about the sweaty baby. He gets his own he gets <laughs> his own chapter. Baby. He gets his own chapter. But but okay. within Dave Gibbs song Shitstorm, he won the sweepstakes that week in part because he referenced some of the craziness. There was this one band yeah. that sang a song called Megalodon that was just, you had to just try oh. to keep a straight face because it was just so nuts. And then there was the badass boogie desire lady who was like sort of a, <laughs> a hyper-sexualized Janis Joplin, but without any of the vocal chops, but she was sure she mm-hmm. had them and her badass boogie <laughs> desire. So I just would like for both of you and listeners, I've unearthed the lyrics the Kid Lightning you, Shitstorm, and I'd like oh to read God. them for you right now. Amazing. This was 2001, the Shitstorm Challenge <laughs> winner. God, the song title Shitstorm by Kid Lightning. 
There's a shitstorm coming, baby. Better get out of the way. It might come tomorrow or it might come today. Better get your house in order if it's in disarray. There's a shitstorm coming, baby, and it's heading your way. It's a half a tank of gasoline, a gallon jug of creatine. Girl, it wants to make your scene. Better shut all your windows and lock down the screens. Wow. It's a crack of thunder in the middle of the night. It's a 10-ton double dose of dynamite. You better watch your back when kid lightning strikes because he's waiting for the moment to be just right. There's a shitstorm coming, baby. Better get out of the way. It might get here sometime next year or later on today. You better get your life in order if it's in disarray. There's a shitstorm coming, baby, and it's heading your way. It's hotter than a house on fire. It never sleeps because it's never tired. It's burning like a funeral pyre. It's bursting like a lover's badass boogie desire. Restless like a cherry wow. bomb. It's creeping like a night-watching peeping Tom. Ooh. Could swallow you up like a megalodon. Little acorns keeps paging me. It won't be long. There's a shitstorm on the horizon. Better get out of the way. My antenna's buzzing. It'll probably touch down today. The cavalry's not coming. Things will not turn out okay. There's a shitstorm coming, baby. And it's heading your way. Wow. It's like wow. it's like Chaucer. It's like Chaucer. It you know, is so good. And, and you know, anyone hearing those lyrics, you might think just because of the the refrain, it, there's a shitstorm coming, yeah. baby, or whatever it is, you might think that it was going to be like a metal song. Heaven's Snow. But Snow. Dave Gibbs, he was the lead singer in a band called Gigolo Ants that were a great band in the 90s. And he has the sweetest, most beautiful yes. voice. And I'm yes. certain, although I can't remember the melody, I'm oh. certain it was a very beautiful, gorgeous. heartfelt, gorgeous, gorgeous. Like a baby right. bird singing. Oh, right. Like a baby yeah. bird singing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Tom Morello, and this is Maximum Firepower. I'm here with my guests, Ann Previn and Nina Gordon. We're talking about open mic night and all it did for us. And all it did to us. So there's a, there are <laughs> a couple of sp- specific instances at these open mic nights that I sometimes wake up in the night sweating and screaming. Yeah. And one of them, <laughs> speaking of sweating, was the big sweaty baby. Now, yeah. there was a club called the Coconut Teaser, yeah, which was at the corner him, right? of yeah. Sunset and Laurel Canyon. And in the basement, it was like a rock and roll club. But in the basement, it was like sort of an acoustic cafe going for sort of a cafe wop, you know, kind of village vibe down there with none of the attending talent. But on on, one, on a Monday night, it was open mic night. And so we would take any open mic night you got. This is before we had kids or anything like that. We yeah. were ready to sing a song. And this place regularly featured a guy that we called the Big Sweaty Baby because he was a large kid and he brought his purple Marshall half stack to the open <laughs> mic night. Now, he's a guy that had like sort of a heavy metal looking guitar and he would plug in Though you could not define him as a guitar player. Like, imagine if you've seen people play guitar and you've seen people play like shredding solos and you move your hands in such a way that you've seen without any or idea of what you're doing. It was this pure cacophony. But the look on his face and when he began to sweat was when he realized that the audience, the small audience, was actually hearing the sounds he was making. And it thrilled this baby. He was like a baby in a crib who was super happy, like with a rattle being rattled above his face. And he would sweat profusely and his right hand would just jerk over the strings as the cacophony grew louder. I don't know if he was singing a song or not, but that was his open mic contribution. And I'm you can obviously I'm still haunted by it. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. You could really see people's trauma 
during their open night, yeah. <laughs> open mic night performances. Absolutely. Like there were some haunting, haunting performances. Yes. And then I remember being at the cafe place that we used to go in the valley. And, yeah. uh, you know, I'd be in the middle of a song that was like sort of tender and the smoothie machine would start up. <laughs> yeah. It'd be like, it's it's a long way to that Oscar, Anne. It's a long way to that. <laughs> I was like, you can't but, wait thirty I, seconds. No, they could not wait. The short answer was they could not wait thirty. Seconds. And the, the host of that one was a very talented and very troubled character. He had some version oh, of yeah. songwriter Tourette's, yeah. where oh, yeah. he would sing like these beautiful. I don't know whether they were like sort of like deep cut. David Bowie B-sides or whatever. They were his own songs. But he had like a really, he hosted the night. So he would get to, he would play as often as he wanted to. He'd play like between the different acts. And I believe that he had some grudge or vendetta against the woman who was making the lattes. And he would bark out in the most jarring, like sort of like subway insane person way, like the most horrible misogynist epithets i mean i can't there's no the fcc will shut us down but he would you know he'd be singing a song about this is about the spaceman from mars we'd be like oh my gosh like oh oh is it and he'd be and he'd be waiting it's like it was a tightrope because he'd be waiting for the next time when he would lower the lower the tourette's boom what I recall most is that there was an understanding that while we were sitting, listening, waiting our turn to go up and perform, that we couldn't look at each other. I remember right. feeling, because especially in that little cafe, mm -hmm. because it was so quiet, except when the smoothie yes. machine was on, we were so afraid we would just crack up if we looked That's at correct. each other. That's correct. And then That's we, correct. Would, we would make someone feel awful, which we didn't want to do. But we couldn't wait until right. it was over so that we could do right. the postmortem. Right, right, right. So yes, yeah, so yes, yeah, so we would keep notes on the uh, on our both both one another's performances, and on, we'd go through the whole night. So big sweaty baby, he would get a whole lot of press, lot of play. Yeah. press, press yeah. inches. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but you know what's it was amazing? Yeah, it was, I we, remember getting such more detailed feedback on my silly open mic night performances than on any other part of my career performing <laughs> from your friend Jack and from all of you. Like yes, the people, yes. you guys would, we would all take notes and yes. it felt like incredibly valuable feedback. You know what I mean? Incredibly valuable. Well, right. And because none of us were, there was no pressure at all. It was really just a way to express yourself and see what right. your friends think. And yeah. it wasn't precious. So it yeah. was very valuable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember feeling like, cause you know, when you drop in these open mind nights, sometimes it would be, you know, like a comedian, like a dour comedian who would be reading from a pad, you know, relating some past traumas that we were, I was looking for the humor in it. Just going like, this seems like just a horrible lopsided therapy session that I'm being, it's being inflicted on me rather than there being any potential entertainment value. But in our little group, it felt like we were creating an atmosphere where greatness was arising. Like I remember right. hearing great Nina Wright, like great songs and Kid Lightning. And I would really, like I was you know, in the midst of making Audio Slave records and then we would go on tour. And I continued this when I was out on tour with Audio Slave on nights off. I would go to open mic nights and sign up as You're the so night watchman cool. and play amazing. my three songs, you know, anonymously in some cowboy bar, you know, in Akron or somewhere and continue it. And it really became addictive to me. And I remember like spending so you know, we were in the midst of making an audio slave record, but I was as much or more of my concentration and my artistic time was spent mm -hmm. for the next Thursday night's open mic night. And for me, the, the biggest challenge was I couldn't remember. I had never been a sung and played guitar at the same time. And I would forget the lyrics. So I write them like Eminem style, like right. on my arm, on my arm, yeah. you know, 
<laughs> There's always something going you wrong do. in the mind. There's always some. Yeah. Um, so, Anne, how did this songwriter salon, if in any way, sort of affect mm-hmm. your songwriting and your career? I think it made me never perform again until the Harvard thing. <laughs> <laughs> until you forced her up there. Yeah. No, it was, you know, in in my life and my career, it was a transitional time from being a performer to not being so much Mm. of a performer, which was a welcome Mm. transition, to be honest with you. Like I'd been in a band, but I was sort of coming out of that and back into being a real, just a songwriter for other people. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. for me, it was just like a really fun way to kind of get out there and practice writing songs within, you know, in a week by myself, which is what I did when I first started writing songs. And it was just so much fun. And then to get the feedback so quickly and, you know, just make music with regular people watching you, you know, play your song. It was just sort of very refreshing and very like, I don't know. I I enjoyed it. And yet I never did it again. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. Nina, how about you? Well, I think maybe I had made a solo record and then I was Yes. Getting ready to make another one. And so it was helpful, definitely, to play songs and figure out which ones were going to work and which ones were most interesting to you guys. And then I ended up making an album with some of those songs on it. And Tom came in and played guitar on one of them. And that was a huge honor. And and then I got pregnant and became like a rock and roll housefrau. So that's basically what happened. (laughs) You know, rock and roll housefrau is a good album title, you guys. I feel like. I need to be like start a side project called like Hot Flash and be in a band and have an album called Rock and Roll House <laughs> This is Hot Flash with Rock and Roll House and Hot Flash would have like an umlaud and then like it certainly would. S- it yeah. certainly yeah. would. Lightning bolt. Um, it, yeah. abs- it absolutely it, would. Well, maybe it's time to re- return to us. Yeah, some sort of Zoom version of the open mic nights. I mean, for me, it, the open mic nights were the beginning of a career. It was tapping into an artistic voice that I didn't know existed, and it tapped into that sort of like the stark, suburban, oppressive yeah. side. You know, I I originally thought that as a songwriter, it would be exclusively these kind of political screeds, and some of them were, but it felt like more of it was this kind of existential yeah. darkness that was very therapeutic in a way to write those songs. And, you know, then I was so nervous performing on those open mic nights. I was very, very comfortable in an arena or at some big festival show, super comfortable, but in front of six friends, three guys, you know, three other people, one with Tourette's and the the latte maker in the background. It was terrifying and sort of naked and vulnerable. And I leaned into it and then, you know, made a number of records doing that and still continue to write songs like that today. I know. It's the uh, best. Any, any, any sub- summations about open mic nights or, or that as we well, prepare to I, You know, depart. it makes me, I, I wonder if they still, you know, they must still exist somewhere. It's such a great way to just watching people and how they relate yes. to music and just that yes. people are so comfortable going up and just sucking <laughs> and yes. you know, just yes. being like horrifying and i just love it's just so horrifying. it's incredible yeah. about humans yeah. that they have so little self-knowledge and that they I want mean, to get up there louise, and show their worst side when you know? louise my bandmate and i first started playing together in the early 90s the very first thing we did was play open mics the two of mm. us with electric guitars and two little tiny amps mm. and I still remember those performers like people just want to express themselves. It's really it's a beautiful thing. It's sort of I mean, the same is kind of true of going to a karaoke bar, but it's even better when it's people performing, like really performing and making themselves so vulnerable. And it's very dear. Like I think of that big sweaty baby and I just think like, (laughs) who is he? And he was, you know. 
I'd forgotten about the guy you said was hosting the thing, that guy, yes. and then whatever beef he had with the smoothie lady, the like barista. that whole thing. I feel like that's just a fascinating character, whoever that yeah. guy is. And he would, was probably in like a metal band in the late 80s and yeah, you probably just... like auditioned for Rat or something and didn't get the gig <laughs> and then hosting he... an open mic. Well, we owe a great deal of thanks to him because his was the original open mic night that sort of began the salon that uh, led yeah, to whatever I think we it, it stopped led going because it got too popular. Is that what yeah, happened? We couldn't get we couldn't get on the list anymore. That's right. I you would have to wait. Happened. It would be a three hour wait yeah. to play. Yeah, right. that's when we started moving into so the big sweaty baby territory at the other place. Teaser, which was creepy and not great. And but I big... remember your mom would come. I remember one yes. night at Coconut Teaser, and Mary Morello was there cheering you on. And, yeah, yeah, I mean, always was, very supportive. It was a big event. Always yeah. very supportive. Always very supportive. Thank you very much, Ann Previn. Thank you very much, Nina Gordon. This has been Tom Morello's uh, Maximum Firepower. Been a great pleasure having you discussing our open mic night hijinks. Until next time, take it easy, but take it. Let foes of justice tremble. This has been Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. Hear this episode again or listen to past shows right now on the SiriusXM app. Search Maximum Firepower.